I want to talk to you this morning about uh, the Holy Spirit and ask you a question. How much time do you, do you spend consi considering the Holy Spirit's role in your life? In his book, The Holy Spirit, Sinclair Ferguson begins by saying, while his work has been recognized, the Spirit himself remains to many Christians an anonymous, faceless aspect of the divine being, if not forgotten, at least unknown. How about for you? What's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Ferguson continues, the typical relationship between believers and the Holy Spirit is too often like that between the husband and wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof. The husband makes constant use of the wife's services, but he fails to recognize her presence and celebrate their relationship. Ferguson's is not an isolated voice. Francis Chan writes, If you or I had never been to a church and had only read the Old and New Testaments, we would have significant expectations of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And yet he continues, There is a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers in churches operate today. To give just a couple of examples, in Acts 2, Peter promises the crowd that whosoever believes, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Christ, by definition, you have received the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, then you do not belong to Him. It's Romans 8, verse 9. And the biblical writers assume that the Spirit's presence in your life will not be theoretical, that it will have effect. Galatians 4, verse 7 reads, God has sent the Spirit of His Sons, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying out that this is not a polite, dignified, or reserved presence, but the Spirit cries out from within us. And what does the Spirit cry out? Uh, the Abba the Aramaic term of affection for what a child uh, calls his or her father. It's what you hear in a, a ball field or playground today. Papa, Daddy. That's what the Spirit cries out from within us. Perhaps you're familiar with Jesus' famous last words in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But that's not the whole verse. That's not even where he begins. Where does Jesus say the power comes from for this global, expansive uh, mission? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will be my witnesses. Later in Acts, there's this scene where the Apostle Paul comes to a church in Ephesus. And he finds some professing believers there. And he asks them, this is Acts chapter 19... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might know that's a controversial passage, widely debated, the place and role of the Holy Spirit in the early church. But here's what's not debated by way of an anecdote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who held the pulpit at Westminster Chapel in London after World War II. Near the end of his ministry one morning, Lloyd-Jones stood in the pulpit and asked this question. He said, I want to talk to you today about the Holy Spirit, and I want to know if you have experienced 
the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He continued, now I know some of you want to say to my question about the Holy Spirit, we got it all at conversion. There's no need for any more experience. Well, said Lloyd-Jones, I have only one question for you then. If you got it all at conversion, where in God's name is it? More than a few of us are living just like that ancient church at Ephesus. We might not doubt his existence. We might have heard of him, but for all practical purposes, the Holy Spirit remains the forgotten God. Now, perhaps I'm, I'm making a few of you nervous, wading into these waters, a holiday weekend. Your experience has not been one of people uh, overlooking, but focusing over much, to the point of telling you that they have heard from God and have a message for you from God. People can be scary. Or maybe talking about the Holy Spirit as a, as, a, as a sore spot. You've been hurt, disappointed, burned by those who set up some sort of two-tier, second-blessing Christianity that made you feel that if you didn't possess or practice certain spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues, whatever that means, then you're second class, third rate, missing out. And yes, there's a time and place to have these very important conversations about what can be complex nuanced and controversial questions like what are the spiritual gifts are the spiritual gifts including the so-called miraculous gifts for today how do we hear god today what is the spirit-filled life people who love god and study the bible carefully can have very different answers to those questions but here's something no one should argue with and where i want us to focus today the church is described by many different images in the New Testament. A bride with a husband, a body with a head, a vineyard connected to a branch. And I want you to notice those are all metaphors. But the church is also described as God's dwelling place on earth. That while God is, in one sense, present everywhere, God is especially and manifestly to be present among his people. In the Bible, the church is not a building which is how we often speak of it today. Where do you go to church? Where is your church located? But properly speaking, biblically speaking, the church is not a place. They didn't have church buildings. The church in the New Testament is not a place where it is a people who have been called out by God and are, quote, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2 verse 22. And that is not a metaphor. That's how God describes the church. A community where God's presence dwells. A colony of heaven. The Spirit is described as a down payment, a guarantee of our future inheritance. That's what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, verse 14, quote, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Saying that's what the Holy Spirit feels like to experience his presence in your life is a taste is a foretaste of heaven a foretaste of heaven on earth of joy peace rest as the spirit of god communes with our spirits spirit to spirit do we have any idea what we've been given in the holy spirit what treasure is buried just beneath the surface of our lives most often untapped. 
when King Solomon built the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. It was breathtaking, uh, a spectacle filled with silver and gold. But do you remember what Solomon, reputed to be the wisest man who ever lived, do you remember what he prayed when he dedicated the temple? This is in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. He prayed, but will God really dwell on earth? The heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. It was incomprehensible to Solomon that a mere building could contain the almighty creator. That he would choose to dwell in a house made by human hands. How could you be here? And yet... You flip over to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That what was incomprehensible to this wise king, the Apostle Paul says, that is now your experience. You are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit if you belong to Christ. Do we have any idea what we have if we have the Holy Spirit? The riches of God's inheritance that have been deposited into our lives. The immeasurable greatness of His power, the Bible says. That we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us on a Tuesday. Do you want the reference there? It's Ephesians 1, verse 19. Towards the end of one of his letters, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church at Corinth, and he laments, he writes, Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And this is precisely what I am suggesting that so many of us do not realize. Now why, why have we neglected so great a gift? Well, this is mystical. That makes some of us nervous. This is mysterious, the Holy Spirit, and we have little appetite for mystery. As Augustine, one of the early church fathers, put it, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. But perhaps in a more street-level way, we may not consider the Spirit's role in our lives, much less want to be led by the Spirit, because this is threatening. Walking in the Spirit entails something that is very frightening to us. It entails letting go, surrender, releasing control. And that is the master addiction for most of us, control. The Spirit is subversive. He subverts our accustomed ways. He challenges our normal MO. And we don't like feeling out of control, having our wills challenged much less handing over our wills to another power. That is unsettling. So no wonder we have such a hard time being present to the Holy Spirit's presence. Though we may be orthodox in our doctrine, professing that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, equal in power, substance, and glory to the Father and the Son, in some churches you can go for weeks without even hearing the Holy Spirit mentioned in any meaningful way. And I hope you're asking, what happened to the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a new book that's out. It's been covered by all the major news outlets entitled The Great Dechurching. 
documenting that we are living amid the largest and fastest transformation of religion in American history. 40 million Christians have left the church in the last 25 years. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all who came to know Christ in the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. I hope that takes your breath away. Could that be true, that more people have left the church in the last two decades than the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined? Yes, it's not about going to church. A full church doesn't mean a church full of Christ followers. But this is a serious concern, this great de-churching. Most of all, what it pretends for the next generation. Perhaps you're asking, why are so many walking away? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and the book claims the remedies likewise need to be varied. But what was so surprising about the book is to discover the vast majority from across the spectrum have walked away not because of disappointment or hurt or disillusionment. There's some of that to be sure. But you know what the main driver has been? You know what it is? Indifference. Church has become, in a word, missable. Yes, here and there, some churches are growing, but the authors claim most often at the expense of other area, smaller churches getting smaller, people just leaving church A to go to church B, which has better programs. But the overall trend, word in, the overall trend in every city is downward. For the first time since Gallup began tracking it, more adults in the U.S. do not attend church than attend. Could it be? Could it be that one of the driving forces for this lack of rootedness is a lack of depth? A lack of people who have had a depth encounter that roots them in Jesus Christ. That what we need is not better advice or more information or smarter people. We need deeper people, more in touch with, more alive to God. Which is to say we need what they used to call revivals in our cities. And if you study church history, revival is always marked by two things. It's always marked by these two things. First, movements of prayer that are grassroots. People start praying. Secondly, public confession of sin among God's people. Incidentally, that's what kick-started what happened at Asbury last year. It wasn't great preaching. It was students gathering together, confessing their sin, not in some bland, generic, non-risky way, but it was painful, public, specific acknowledgement of their need of God's forgiveness. And Jesus tells us that this is one of the hallmarks of the Holy Spirit's presence. Jesus says, this is John 16, verse 8, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But this conviction is not a shaming, crawl-back-in-your-shell type, but one that exposes, it exposes us only to extend to us the miracle of God's forgiveness, that it is available and it is, it is, it is there for anyone who will admit their need of a Savior and call out to God for His mercy. If you have a depth encounter with the real God and His provision in Jesus, 
That's what Jesus calls being born again, and we need to reclaim that phrase. That phrase is not the province of religious fundamentalists or the religious right for that matter. This is Jesus' phrase. And if you go back and read where Jesus uses this phrase, have you ever noticed what he links it to? The Holy Spirit. John 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. These are not theoretical ideas. These are spiritual realities that can only be spiritually discerned. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus continues. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So, he continues, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, my goal today is very simple. It is to wake us up. It is to wake us up, to have the courage to admit that there is a gap between what we profess to believe and what we experience. Our family moved here from Los Angeles, California. The area of Los Angeles where we lived was 2%, 2% churched. It means in L.A., you never assumed anyone you met was a Christian. That was never an opening conversation starter, where do you go to church? I saw recently a study from the Welburn Foundation that in Evansville, Evansville, Indiana, is 84% churched. 84%. <laughs> it's hard to find someone here who will admit to not going to church. But I want to tell you, in my opinion, for our family, I have three kids, middle school and under, I believe it is easier to follow Christ in 2% Los Angeles than in 84% Evansville. It's harder here. And that's not a slight against Evansville. We love Evansville. We love Midwestern people. It's that among other reasons, it can be very difficult to be honest here. If you or your family have gone to church for decades, to admit to anyone, much less to yourself, that the promises you read about in the New Testament can seem very far away from your own experience. Now, I could give you hundreds of examples. I'm just going to give you one. This is Jesus, again, in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, verse 38. What is Jesus talking about? He continues, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What do you make of that? Rivers. Now, can I just get one brave soul out there to admit that we have no idea what Jesus is talking about? That when you look at your life, you say, you know, if I'm honest, I don't see rivers of living water flowing out of my life. And neither do the people around me. I mean, maybe a trickle here and maybe rivers. I mean, in this great de-churching, Maybe it's not that we're asking too much of people in our churches, but we're not asking enough. I mean, have we reduced this grand invitation of following King Jesus into all areas of life? 
and, and joining with the living God in the renewal of all things. Have we reduced that to going to a building a few times a month? Joining a small group and volunteering in the nursery? I mean, isn't there someone out there asking, am I missing something? Have I not been told something? Is there more to it than this? 40 million people walking away who've heard, yes, Jesus died for my sins, go to heaven when I die. But have you come to the point in your life where you're asking, am I missing something? And I'm suggesting that we have neglected the intimacy of our union with Christ and communion with God the Father through the Holy Spirit. I do not believe it's an overstatement to say that in the West, the Holy Spirit is the forgotten God. And I say in the West because in 1900, seven out of ten Christians lived in Europe and North America. Today, it's three out of ten. The center of gravity has moved south. By that, I mean South America and <clears throat> east, Africa and Asia. And whatever you think about the place of the Holy Spirit today, no student of church history can deny that a vast swath of this tremendous global missions movement over the last century has been Pentecostal, Holy Spirit focused. Not without controversy, not without problems, but also not without visible effect. Real, living. In the East African revivals, there would be large gatherings, much larger than this, where people would gather together to call out and confess their sins to one another. There's that sign of revival again. And eyewitnesses report that men and women who were confessing their need loudly and publicly, they couldn't finish. They couldn't finish, they couldn't be heard because their confessions were being drowned out by praise, by doxology, by people praising God for his provision of Christ's blood to pay the debt of those very sins. They're praising God. That's one of the reasons it's harder to follow Jesus in Evansville. I mean, when most everyone goes to church, who's going to say the emperor has no clothes? If 84% claim to know Christ, if our city were really 84% populated with spirit-filled believers, which is what it means to know Christ, shouldn't our city look remarkably different, including this community? Shouldn't Evansville be Heavensville? I mean, shouldn't we be bumping into Jesus everywhere we turn? Shouldn't the aroma of Christ fill where we live, work, and play? Shouldn't our churches, which the Bible calls the dwelling place of God, be marked by compassion instead of critical spirits? Shouldn't they be filled with forgiveness and, and radical stories of reconciliation testifying to God's resurrection power? I want to ask you, are these fair questions? Are these fair questions? If the Bible is telling us the truth, and it always does, then the question we should be wrangling with, if it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in us, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't there be a demonstrable difference between someone who has the Spirit of God living in them and someone who does not? I mean, maybe not rivers, but maybe a little more gentle, a little more patient, a little more kind. 
aren't we bothered that we're not more bothered? Isn't it a reasonable inference that there are people all over this city who have no intimate, personal relationship with the Spirit of God? 84% church. What's the percentage who are, to use Jesus' phrase, born again? God only knows. God only knows. But why aren't there more people asking, is there more? Am I one of those people who goes to church Sunday after Sunday, whose head is full, but whose heart has not been touched by the Spirit of God, who lacks daily intimate communion with God the Father through the Holy Spirit? Well, this is going to blow you away. There are a lot of places we could look in the Bible to learn about who the Holy Spirit is, but by far the most concentrated teaching on the Holy Spirit is given by none other than Jesus on his last night at his last supper, captured in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16. Jesus has just told them that he's going away. And yet he says, and it's puzzling, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm leaving, but I will not leave you. And it's meant to be puzzling. How could that be? The key verse is John 14, verse 16, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, our translation says, helper to be with you forever. You may know that word helper translates the word paraclete. Paraclete is a notoriously difficult word to translate. Many English translations differ. The old King James Version translates paraclete comforter. Other translations say counselor. Some say advocate or friend. My point is there is no exact English translation that captures this word paraclete. And reams have been written about this word. But we focus so much on this word paraclete that we overlook a word in Jesus' words that actually might be more significant. And I wonder if you've ever noticed it. Look again with me at John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete to be with you forever. Now, however you translate it, helper, comforter, counselor, advocate, friend, you heard the word another who is the first? It's okay, you can talk. Jesus, that's right, exactly, Jesus. The true helper, comforter, counselor, advocate, and friend. I'm going away, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another to be for you what I've been for you. And this sheds light on one of the most enigmatic things Jesus ever said later on that same night in that same conversation. Jesus says, this is John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is better for you that I'm leaving, he tells his disciples. And they are rightly perplexed. How could that be? How could it, be poss how could it possibly be better for the disciples not to have the physical presence of Jesus beside them? Jesus continues, keep reading verse 7. For if I do not go away, the helper, there's that word again, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him 
feel, Jesus says. Now, have you ever wished in the dead of night when you couldn't sleep, and you're filled with doubts, have you ever said, if only I could have known Jesus, if only I, if only I could have heard his voice, if only I could have touched him, seen him perform his miracles. But Jesus tells his first disciples that his going away is actually to their advantage. How could such things be? Because the only thing that could possibly be better than having Jesus beside you as you go is having Jesus inside of you wherever you are and whatever you're facing. That's the Holy Spirit. Not just God with us, but Christ in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, verse 27. And this opens up that last discourse in John 14. If you go back and read John 14, verse 17, it's exactly what Jesus promises his disciples in his last night with them. He says of the Holy Spirit, this is verse 17, he dwells with you and in you. See, that's how it's possible for the church to be the dwelling place of God. And it's not a metaphor. It's a promise. It's a declaration. He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus, who always tells us the truth, promises us. And that's why he can immediately say, if you keep reading, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And now we see why it's to our advantage that Jesus went away. Because now it is no longer just Jesus with us, but Jesus in us. That is the Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson summed it up this way. To have the Holy Spirit means nothing less than to have the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Christ dwelling within us. That's it. That, that, that's it. What? Have you ever heard anything more startling and stupendous in your life than that? If that does not excite you, you are dead. You are dead. If that does not make you want to rise up out of your seat and say, thank you, Lord, for coming into my life. I heard Brene Brown say recently that she realized all of her life she'd been misusing the words overwhelmed and stressed. She said overwhelmed means an extreme level of stress and emotional or cognitive intensity to the point of being unable to function. I can identify with that. God never gives us more than we can handle with him, but every day we have more than we can handle without him. And being aware of this does not make you weak. It makes you sane. It makes you awake. As opposed to how we normally try and operate in our own strength, on our own power, which is why we are chronically tired. When you feel misunderstood and alone like no one understands you, when you just wish that you had an advocate on your side, you say, oh, if I just had a wise counselor who could help me. When you long for a friend who, could, who would stand by your side no matter what. The spirit of truth, Jesus calls him, brings to your remembrance who we have in Jesus. The helper, comforter, counselor, advocate, friend. For whatever you're facing today. You say, how can I access this power so I can live in that fullness? That is another sermon. 
But here is the Holy Spirit's primary role in your life. Jesus says in John 16, verse 14, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's primary role is not adding to or completing, but applying to our minds and sealing on our hearts what Christ has accomplished for us. The Spirit turns two-dimensional ideas into three-dimensional reality until even in your heart there is a crying out. Dale Bruner calls him the shy member of the Trinity because he defers to another. He will glorify me, Jesus says. He shines the light of the glory of Christ into our hearts. You know, I used to live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you've ever been to Chattanooga, you know there's a tourist attraction there, Ruby Falls on Lookout Mountain. And if you've ever driven up Lookout Mountain, then you know no matter what time of day, there's always a man at the entrance of Ruby Falls, and all day long he does this. Just all day long. Over here. Look over here. Park over here. Come over here. That is the Holy Spirit. That is his role in our lives. When we are overwhelmed and we are stressed, look at him. Look at Jesus. Look at what you have in Jesus. Look at what power you have in Jesus. Look at what resources. Look what a helper you have. Look what a friend you have. We started this sermon by asking, how much time do you devote your mind to the Holy Spirit's role in your life? Shouldn't that be multiple times every day? Spiritual maturity is not equivalent to theological knowledge. It is coming to embrace that we are most free when we turn over our wills and let ourselves be led by the Spirit of God. This is freedom. I used to be a Presbyterian minister. Don't hold that against me. In those circles, John Calvin, you might know, is a pretty important name, 16th century Protestant reformer. A few years back, I was reading an essay by the famous 19th century American theologian B.B. Warfield who said, quote, John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Now, I knew enough to know I had no idea what Warfield was talking about. The sobering thing was the real hole was not in my knowledge of John Calvin. It was that he was talking about a life which, for all my learning, with which I was unfamiliar. It was the sobering realization that I lacked daily communion with God through the Holy Spirit. And some brave soul pointed out to me how infrequently I talked about the Holy Spirit in any meaningful way. Changed my life. Close with this. Jesus' most famous story he ever told, you know, is in Luke 15, known as the prodigal son, but it's really about two sons who were lost in two different ways. Like you, I've read that story hundreds of times, but there's, there's a line in that story that has always, always eluded me. It's at the very end. What the father tells the elder brother, who all these years had been dutifully serving and serving, but never experientially saw himself as the beloved child. Do you remember at the end of that story what the father says to the dutiful brother or what he says to him he says son you are always with me 
you are always with me. That's it. That's it. Even the cross of Christ, as wonderful as it is, is not the end. The cross is the means. The end is communion. The fullness of salvation is, Son, you are always with me. Dwelling. Communion with God. Life with God. Alive. You want that? You want that? Anybody want that? Jesus says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Luke chapter 11. Well, let me pray for myself, for all of us. If you'll pray with me. This is an old prayer. Father, send your Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, O oh Lord God, Heavenly Father, we poor sinners confess that in our flesh dwells no good thing and that left to ourselves we die and perish in sin since that which is born of the flesh is flesh and cannot see the kingdom of God. But we ask that you would give us your grace and mercy and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that being born again in him, we may firmly believe the forgiveness of sins and may daily increase in brotherly love until at last we obtain eternal salvation. Through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.